1: Previously on What Next. Police shot this boy outside my apartment. Given everything that's happened tonight, what makes you think that the cops won't shoot us?
0: Why does it it bother me so much that that particular story is the myth?
1: People have been too quiet too long in this area about the police violence.
0: I never forgot that night. Obviously, I'm telling you about it now,
1: almost 20 years later. teaching in Ferguson, right? And you lived there too?
0: Yes, that is true. I taught at St. Louis Community College, the Florissant Valley campus, which is in Ferguson.
1: Back in 2014, Wesley Bell worked as a lawyer and a judge in St. Louis County. He was teaching too. I mean, I read one one accounting that you were like sitting on your porch and you literally saw protesters go by. Is that is that accurate? <laughs>
0: Not not, my, not a porch, but from my front, yeah, from the front door of the building that I was in, yeah.
1: From the beginning, Wesley took on a very specific role in Ferguson. He tried to be a peacemaker. He started going to protests the day after Michael Brown was killed.
0: Uh, so just to kind of paint the picture, because this was the, f- the the first time that this protest was really happening, there were young kids there across the street the police department the police officers were barricaded in the police parking lot and the crowd which some people were angry obviously we understand that and approaching the police department and so several there's about three or four of us we stood in the middle we just knew if that crowd got to the to the police officers who were barricaded that something bad was going to happen so we stood in the middle just to try and calm tensions and, and keep the peace. And unfortunately nothing happened that day.
1: But then there was the day after, and the day after that. Eventually, when a grand jury declined to indict police officer Darren Wilson after shooting Michael Brown, Wesley had to make a choice. Stay or go?
0: So yeah, that... That night, I I did have to leave.
1: On the streets of Ferguson, protests that have been largely peaceful over the last few months erupted after the grand jury's decision.
0: It's funny now, but it wasn't funny at the time. I was watching on television the coverage, and if you all remember the the police car when it was set on fire.
1: Two police cars were set on fire as officers in riot gear and armored vehicles attempted to break up unruly crowds.
0: That was right in front of my building. So from the from the camera angle at the, the news, whatever news telecast I was watching showed, it looked like my building was on fire. And I just remember that thought like, oh my God, <laughs> my, my, my house is on fire.
1: Part of what made the crowd so angry that night was that the prosecuting attorney, he didn't just decline to prosecute Darren Wilson. He'd refused to bring charges against any police officer in two decades. This year, Wesley Bell took that attorney's job. He's St. Louis County's first Black prosecutor. Today, you can't make change without change. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before he was a judge, before he was a professor, Wesley Bell started his career as a public defender. He wanted to help people. But he was also ambitious.
0: I was a product of the OJ trial. I was, I was 19, and, and I just saw that dichotomy that if you have money, you experience the system in a different manner as opposed to those who don't. And so my thought was,
1: what better way
0: to make change than to be a judge?
1: But when Wesley became a judge, he found other problems. While he was hearing cases in traffic court, he realized the people coming before him were being inundated by fees. These are the kinds of problems the Justice Department highlighted in their report about Ferguson. They laid out how tickets and fines were disproportionately punishing Black residents because if they couldn't pay, a warrant would be issued for their arrest.
0: Until the Department of Justice's report Few knew the scope of it, how this was going on across not only St. Louis County, but across the state and, honestly, across the nation. And what I take pride in is that in my courts, there were issues that I was aware of just from my experience that I corrected in those courts. Like what? Yeah, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, Payment plans.
1: If someone came in front of Wesley and couldn't pay their fines, he'd say, listen. Let's work something out.
0: I remember getting a little pushback from up top saying that we don't want these lenient payment plans. We want three payments. So if their fines are $200 and divide that by three, if it's a thousand divided by three. And so my thought was, okay, I'm going to get around this. (laughs) And so when someone would come and let's just say the minimum payment would be three hundred dollars and they said, well, I don't have three hundred dollars. What I would tell them is, unfortunately, I can't give you a payment arrangement lower than that. But what I can do is I'll continue the case for you and then we'll do this again. And then they come back in the next court date and they only have twenty five dollars. I'll take that twenty five and we'll just continue it.
1: So you made your own payment plan.
0: I made my own payment plans. And here's the, the irony. Once Ferguson happened and the protests started, then those same individuals came back to me and said, well, remember what you were doing, being lenient with payment plans? Why don't you go ahead and start doing that again? I <laughs> well, I never stopped.
1: <laughs> After spending time on the bench, Wesley began to see the job differently.
0: It didn't take long to realize that the real impact came from the prosecutor's office. Statistics show 90-plus percent of cases are resolved by the time they get to the judge. And so it didn't take long to figure out that the real impact comes from the prosecutor's office. And so shortly thereafter, I actually stepped down from the bench and focused just on being a municipal court prosecutor.
1: After that, he served on the city council. Then ran for prosecuting attorney of St. Louis County and won. He was sworn in on New Year's Day at midnight.
0: I, Wesley J.C. Bell, do solemnly swear... Do solemnly swear... ...that I possess all the qualifications...
1: In his first day on the job, Bell moved swiftly, firing a number of veteran prosecutors and then issuing a seven-page memo, laying out exactly how the office's approach to criminal justice was about to change. He said he'd no longer prosecute low-level marijuana offenses... He had also declined to criminally pursue parents who failed to pay child support. He ended cash bail for misdemeanors, too. You know, there has been this wave of progressive prosecutors and people who are a little nervous about that. I think they look at the speed at which people move when they take office, and that's part of their nervousness. I wonder if you could explain a little bit why you moved so swiftly when you took office to do so much at once.
0: You know, first and foremost, and I say this all the time, I don't know how to make change without change. And as human beings, we are wired to be afraid of change. What, what we make a point to do is we make a point to explain not only our positions, but the why behind our positions, the research, the data that supports our positions. And if we find data that proves that we should be doing something a better way, then that's what we do. There's always that initial instinct, it seems, that, you know, uh, people who are used to doing things one way will, will just cringe when they hear of change happening. But once they understand it, you know, they become converts, if you will. And so... We wanted to hit the ground running. We wanted to set an example of where we were going so that the office and the attorneys knew what we were doing and that this change was coming and that it was time to get on board. Um, And we didn't want to wait.
1: Now that he's in office, there's one case in particular that Wesley Bell doesn't really want to talk about. He doesn't want to say whether he plans to reopen an investigation into Darren Wilson. But earlier this summer, he took a step that might make a prosecution possible. He created a Conviction and Incident Review Unit. This office will report directly to him and investigate officer-involved shootings and possible wrongful prosecutions. I was struck by something you said when you announced this, which is you said part of the reason you made this decision was cost, because if you had a special prosecutor for every case, that would cost a lot of money, and this would be a way to do more, maybe with a little bit less.
0: Yeah, and, and we want to make sure that there is an independent branch of our office that is not having the same interactions with law enforcement, that is an independent unit, dedicated unit, and they can review potential wrongful conviction cases. They can review political corruption cases. They can review old cases that maybe were not indicted. Then that does help address the cost issue, because if you appoint a special prosecutor, an outside special prosecutor. Lawyers don't come cheap, and you have no idea what your costs are going to be.
1: I'm interested to hear you talk about the budgeting and the challenges of it, because it really stood out to me how money plays into all of the decisions that are made by someone in your position, by the police force, and how... The DOJ report about what happened in Ferguson made that really, really clear. I was struck that when you were first elected to this position, someone said to you, and you said, Oh, yes, this is right, you know, listen, Missouri, the state of Missouri, will reimburse you if you get a guilty verdict as the prosecutor. And it stood out to me because I thought, wow. It seems like there are a lot of weirdly aligned incentives here.
0: So anyone who is in the jail, if they are convicted on a state charge, the state will reimburse St. Louis County, not our office specifically. But to your broader point, I I think that adds a layer of conflict or at least the appearance of it. And I'll say in these six plus months, a little over six months, we've reduced the jail population in St. Louis County by 15%. And what we know is that when you incarcerate a nonviolent offender, they are significantly more likely to reoffend. Our recidivism rates now are up to 83% nationally. And so when we're reducing these jail population numbers to the lowest level since the early uh, 2000s, and we just got an update today that Since the last report last month, they've been reduced by another 57 individuals. And we're talking about the nonviolent, low-level offenders. They don't need to see the inside of a jail. And, And I'll add this. That allows us to reallocate more resources to the serious and violent offenses.
1: But usually, prosecutors are measuring their progress by looking at their conviction rate. And, you know, that's a metric that it sounds like you're not interested in but the public is used to it. (laughs) It's what people are used to looking at to show that the work is being done. And I wonder how you get people used to a new metric and what that new metric is.
0: I think, again, it goes back to what I started with, is that I don't know how to make change without change. And I could care less about conviction rates. What I want to look at is the impact that we have on our community. We gave the opiate epidemic a several-year head start before we started addressing it, and we're still not addressing it as adequately as we should. But we gave the heroin and cocaine and crack epidemics a generational head start. If one is a violent offender, then yes, they need to be held accountable. But if one just has a a drug problem, if they just need mental health care, Giving them that care increases the likelihood that they will be productive citizens. And and so, yes, we don't care about conviction rates. We care about the impact on the community.
1: Yeah, but of course, giving them that health care isn't something necessarily you can do all the time.
0: Well, I mean, no, there's nothing you can do all the time. You can incarcerate, but we've already seen that trying to incarcerate our way out of substance abuse doesn't work. Trying to incarcerate Our way out of mental health issues doesn't work. We have to start uh, recognizing and treating the root cause and drivers of crime. And and if we're going to be serious about the solution, we got to be serious about the problem.
1: But there must be cops who say, I'm just doing my job. I am pursuing the law and I am arresting people who need to be arrested. And when you're, for instance, declining to prosecute someone, they see that as an overreach, saying you're taking into your hands this control that maybe they think the legislature should have, or maybe they think is just unreasonable because we've decided, for instance, that we feel a certain way about marijuana or whatever. And I wonder about that.
0: We have roughly 2,000 officers in St. Louis County. And there were some um, who pushed back. But what I find is that as we go around and we talk to them and explain to them the facts that 83% of people released from prison will be arrested again. So that means that they're arresting the same people over and over. When we look at 76% of people held in local jail suffer from both mental health problems and substance abuse disorders. What that means is that they're arresting the same people, and most of them are dealing, the overwhelming majority, are dealing with mental health issues and substance abuse issues. Once we start explaining that, we start getting the buy-in. And so the second part of that answer is with respect to legislators. And, And that was their question is, well, aren't you, by not Enforcing, you know, drug possession, small m- amounts of marijuana, uh, aren't you being a legislator? And and you know, my answer is just like with any prosecutors, we have we do have discretion on how we use our resources. But also, I I talk to them about those facts, and usually, what I'm seeing is that the the ones who still push back are the people who haven't been exposed to the the facts, who we haven't gotten a chance to really talk to and explain what we're doing. Because once we do, they're getting on board by and large.
1: And I guess the prosecutors have always had discretion. You're just using it differently. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And and we're just using it to where we are prioritizing things that actually affect public safety. And, and, and I would say I could say this about myself, and Mary, I could probably say it about you. When you think about the safety of your family, it's not that individual in their basement smoking a joint. It's the individual with a gun who means to harm
1: them. You seem really unflappable. <laughs> I I just wonder...
0: Is that a compliment or an insult?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder if anything you've encountered is, has pissed you off. Yeah, I mean,
0: it is frustrating at times, but, you know, I understand coming into this office that as a city councilman, I represented uh, 21,000 people and and it's hard to reach everyone. You have a town hall, you go to businesses and talk to people and then you get to the council meeting and there's still people saying, well, how come you haven't talked about this? And I'm like, I've talked about it all month. <laughs> you still can't reach them. So now I'm in a jurisdiction of close to a million.
1: At the end of our conversation, I couldn't get this picture out of my head. From those first nights of protest in Ferguson. Wesley Bell in the middle of the street, keeping the protesters calm and holding the cops back. It seems to me, in his new job, he's still doing that. This is the last of our three-part series on Ferguson, Missouri, five years later. Special thanks today to our guests for the last few shows, Wesley Bell, John McWhorter, Stacey Graham, and Joel Anderson. Joel now works at Slate, by the way. He's gonna host the next season of Slow Burn, so stay tuned. We had help this week from Katya Kumkova and Katie Rayford. Low & Lou conceptualized this series, and Allison Benedict helped lead our production. Gabe Roth is the director of audio here at Slate. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. Jason's the guy behind all the audio design you heard in these episodes. Today is the very last day for our amazing producer, Ethan Brooks. He played a critical role in this series and plenty of other shows before this. Be on the lookout for his work. We're going to miss him. I'm Mary Harris. I'm going to be back next week with more What Next.